this retreat I've I've uh, specially asked to give to give this uh, retreat to people who've never been on one of my retreats. So, <laughs> and I recognize a lot of you anyway. <laughs> and then I wanted to have this retreat also, particularly the uh, courage that Thai people who come to the monastery and the Thai monks and nuns are going to try to to also use some Thai instructions of, for their benefit and also for mine to kind of brush up my Thai. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this, to, to notice what you are expecting on a retreat, I always like to start out with, at the beginning of the retreat, with really the beginning. To, because some of you come here, uh, maybe this is your first retreat. First one you've ever had. Or it's the first one with me. Uh, maybe it's the first one in this tradition. And then there's all kinds of expectations, rumors, you've probably heard rumors, stories, what other people have said, all kinds of various uh, things going through your minds about uh, maybe it's going to be painful or hard work or uh, people go crazy or whatever. <laughs> so you, you come with maybe some kind of expectation or, or even dread as a state in your mind, just to notice what, what do you expect from the retreat and or what is your what do you anticipate not that I'm asking you to, to expect or anticipate anything whatsoever, but just to notice that this uh, affects in what, the, what you're going to experience on, on during this time just the idea of hard work or, or silence or having to to sit still or be quiet these these words can also uh, affect you you know what do they what do they bring up in your mind just to notice how powerful words are i remember in in uh, just in just uh, say in uh, when we lived uh, in Oxford years ago, before Chithurst, <coughs> the Ubakin tradition, and John Coleman, teacher John Coleman used to give these retreats and we'd sit, uh, sit on his retreats. And in their tradition, they, they have a particular technique they use. And then uh, every day they'd have what they call uh, maximum what was it, maximum endeavor, something like that, in which you, you, during that hour, you had to, the idea of, of maximum endeavor was, was such a uh, heavy thought that where I could usually sit for uh, an hour in relative comfort, 
with maximum endeavor, I, I'd sit five minutes and be in agony. <laughs> so that was, I noticed that, I think, just the idea of having to sit there and really make yourself meditate <laughs> creates, uh, creates these tensions uh, that, that create pain. And they're just, just the idea, just a concept of having to really do something can bring all the, the kind of conditions in to, to create pain and increase pain. So this is how powerful our minds are, as we all know, just the thoughts in them and the, the kind of, this what, what thinking does, how it can bring us up or bring us, uh, or uh, make us depressed, elated, uh, sad or whatever, whatever we think is, uh, and we create uh, then uh, a mood that we easily uh, can uh, become attached to and, and uh, get lost in. So I want to start out this retreat in an auspicious way uh, as, a, as a, that the first three days of a, of a ten-day retreat like this uh, the m- important thing is to calm down and relax. That's the advice I give. For the first three days, it takes three days because you must remember that that you come from maybe distant places, uh, from busy lives, all kinds of uh, obligations, duties, responsibilities, uh, worries and problems and so forth. A stressful life, maybe you have a very kind of difficult job, whatever, uh, or just traveling, maybe from northern England or from Wales or wherever, just to to come here. Getting maybe in a traffic jam on the motorway or whatever. These things, just the the travel, the the tensions, the stress, or just the routineness of your life. <coughs> It's the way you live your life, what you're used to, what you're accustomed to. And then when you come here, recognize that you're in a retreat center, that uh, it's, uh, you know, you have a, a, a schedule to, to conform to. The, you don't have to decide very much during this, this 10 days. Uh, the, everything's designated when, when you're going to eat, when you're going to wake up, when you're going to come in here, when you're going to go out there. So in that way, it makes life very easy. You don't have to. You don't have to think of what do I do next. Everything is prescribed for you, and and so that that makes life sim- more simple. Where in your daily life you have to make all kinds of decisions. What are, what are we going to eat today? You know now what do I do? I've got this free time, or I've got to go shopping down at the supermarket, or these friends drop in, and and so forth, so that. That say your routine, ordinary, daily life is one way, where you have to have to make innumerable choices or decisions, or you have duties and obligations. Here, we, we what we do is we we give you the three refuges and the eight precepts. This is the form, the physical form of restraint, uh, silence, uh, the way we relate to each other during this the, these uh, ten days. Uh, we can live together in this 
small space, all these people, uh, many uh, of who have never seen each other before, don't know each other, and yet uh, in silence and, and through meditation you'll find a strange kind of uh, bonding taking place in a meditation retreat on the tenth day. Sometimes people don't even want to, even though they don't know each other's name, they don't want to leave each other because <laughs> there's been a, in the silence and through the, the various uh, things that people have experienced, there's been a tremendous support in there and a, and a sharing and uh, of, of a particular experience. Because this is, this is a meditation towards realization of truth. We're all here for a very good reason, not for, not to, for any kind of ignoble or selfish reason. They put your intention for coming here, no matter what you might think it is. I'd make, I advise you to make your intention very pure. The reason that you're here for the next ten days is to realize truth and be free from ignorance. Whether you think you can or not doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. Or whether you, whether you feel uh, that that's what you're really here for, it doesn't. Don't 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 worry about. Don't don't try to figure out what your real emotional intentions might be at any given moment. Make them on a rational plane. Uh, so that you're you're here to realize the truth and be free from ignorance, and and that is uh, something to that is your guide. That's that trust in that intention. Then you can begin to look at the way you you react to things or the things that come up in your mind or the kind of fears or uh, anxieties, worries that that you're experiencing, the annoyance, the annoyances or the doubts about yourself or whatever, these can be then seen in a perspective not, not highly <coughs> fraught with, with a, a personal uh, view, but reflected in that perfect intention that even though we're all very different as individuals and as personalities, our intention is one, the same intention. Uh, so that, that 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 we're not, you know, and that will allow us to begin to to see what kind of personal reactions we have and emotional uh, problems that arise, and we can we can look at them then in a way that that isn't so confusing. Where when we tend to be caught up in in our each in the in the uniqueness or of ourselves, our individuality, our our special personalities, our special qualifications, uh, then it's, it's, there's so many problems we create, so many endless differences and, and doubts and, and so much confusion around all the, how different we are one from another. When we, we eat, if I should ask this evening, each one to get up and give kind of um, a brief history of your life, there, no two would be the same. There'd be all kinds of different uh, people would emphasize different things or ignore different things or whatever. But on the level of our presence here, we're, we're all here in this one place with this intention of realizing the truth, being free from ignorance. 
and that establishes us in in a way of, of being with each other in which we don't have to well, you know we, we're not here to to get to know each other as individuals or personalities but we're, we're as a group of meditators people here on this retreat we we're here to support each other in this noble endeavor to realize truth so that the uh, refuges this is a traditional form of Buddha Dhamma Sangha Buddha is is the word that we use is a beautiful word meaning the, the ability to know the truth Buddhi in the Sanskrit language in the Pali language means uh, insight knowledge, direct intuitive knowledge with, with wisdom. So Buddha is a personification of that. So Buddha is our refuge. There's not a becoming a Buddhist as such, but taking a refuge in that pure intelligent awareness. That is something we use, we learn how to use on this retreat. Not something that we kind of believe in as, as, as an external force, but something more and more you, you become, you, you, you begin to realize your true nature. You're coming from, not from trying to get something that you don't have yet, but, try, but beginning to awaken and realize the true nature of things, the way things really are. Where on your personality level of being a person, you probably think I'm I'm somebody who there's something wrong with me. I have a lot of problems. I've come here on a meditation retreat in order to get rid of solve these problems, in order to become somebody that's better, or to become an enlightened person in the future. Or and, and this is the thinking mind, isn't it? The personality view, the sense of oneself as an individual. Uh, one, your mind would, would uh, assume this. I'm somebody, there's something wrong with me. I've come to this retreat in order to do something, in order to become enlightened or become somebody who's better. And that is the personality view. But when, I'm, when, when you take refuge in Buddha, then that refuge isn't in becoming somebody who takes refuge, but in in that sense of, of here on this retreat, you're actually going to use, you're learning to use wisdom, to be awake, to be aware, to know the truth. Not somebody who, who attains the truth or gets it because you don't have it yet. It, truth is here, it's always with us, it's never absent. It's only that we don't, we forget about it. We get caught up in all our fears and desires. Then the Dhamma, refuge in Dhamma or Dharma, many of you know the word Dharma and in uh, Pali it's Dhamma, means the, means the truth, truth of the way it is. It's not an abstraction of like some kind of abstract law in nature. It's not like a, some, in that way that seems vague and, 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 and rather remote. But it, the truth of the way it is, is that we're, we're, we're here 
learning from the way it is with us at this moment. The way it is here at Amravati. Whatever happens here, whether it's raining or thundering or sunny or hot or cold or freezing or whatever the food is like, whatever the, the sleeping accommodation is, whatever the uh, you know, whatever happens uh, is is uh, we're not looking at it in terms of of how of ideals of how it should be, but more or less bringing into our our mind, remembering that life is this way, dealing with with heat and cold, with with uh, you know sleeping and waking up and coming in and going out and sitting, standing, walking, lying down with with breathing, with feeling, consciousness, just the way things are, that is, say, for all of us, because in any of these functions or experiences, we're all the same, isn't it? We're, we're all breathing, we're all, we're all going to be either sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, we're all going to be coming in and going out of this room, we're all going to be eating the food, and uh, we're all going to be uh, feeling hot or cold, or just right, <laughs> and and so this is this is our common uh, experience of of just uh, being a, a a conscious, sensitive being in a sensory realm like planet Earth. It's like this, this way. Now notice that particular phrasing where it, we're not we're not saying how it should be. We could say, we could try to set up conditions so they're perfect. There's a perfect temperature here all the time. Uh, the food is, is, is what everybody likes completely, and there's no, nothing that one doesn't like. And we, we try to please everyone, make, make you happy with everything, so that everybody feels uh, that they're getting everything they want or desire beyond our control to do that, isn't it? We've got, we can learn from our own frustrations or, or our standards that we have, if we have high standards or high expectations and those aren't realized. We can learn from our own feeling of being annoyed or fed up or something wrong. Because human life is like this, isn't it? It's filled with, with things of, that are not what we want or not the way we want life to be, not the way it should be, it's not fair, or it should be better, or something or other. These kind of complaints or of the mind, the, the way the mind will criticize or comment or make a problem, we begin to observe this. So in the retreat center here, we try to set a standard which is adequate, you know, not not catering to the highest standard and expectations of uh, with people who expect you know want five star uh, accommodation, <laughs> or we're not trying to bring it down to the mo the meanest uh, and most uh, kind of deprived standard either. But just the best we can provide under the existing conditions are, are this way. So in this in this reflection, we 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 began we we find an acceptance, the ability of the human heart to accept life, accept the moment, uh, and which doesn't mean 
always going to like it, but it means we can accept and bear with, and even appreciate or, or, or delight in things the way they are. If we're freed from that tendency to always be wanting it, wanting something else, or endlessly comparing what we have with, with something else. Then the Sangha is the uh, third refuge, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and this is uh, example is the Bhikkhu Sangha or the Samana Sangha of the monks, the nuns and so forth. The, then, the, then there's the Arya Sangha, those who, who live according to the Dhamma and have realization. Sangha implies a community or a group. So in this sense, we're sangha also. At this, we're a group practicing the dhamma as individual uh, personalities, as individual beings, a community, a group of people practicing the dhamma according to the teachings of the Buddha. So this refuge in sangha also is a, is a refuge in in uh, in community rather than in particular personality. For example, in Theravada Buddhism, you don't take refuge in the teachers. You're not taking refuge in me. You're taking refuge in the Sangha. So that this is this is an important thing because oftentimes teachers become, uh, you know, we be we become personalities for you. We become, you know, sources of of great admiration or infatuation or aversion or irritation, the kind of frictions that that our personalities might might bring up or the kind of reactions is one one level of experience. But our refuge isn't then if then if, if that's what you're doing with me, then of course it it means that you're trying to take refuge in, in, in a person or your idea of a of a personality or a teacher. And the Buddha uh, insisted that the refuge not be in in a person or a particular personality or an individual, but in Sangha. So Buddha even uh, is, is, even though we respect and, and feel gratitude towards uh, Shakyamuni Buddha or Gotama the Buddha, the, the sage who established the teaching, we're not taking refuge in, in, in the memory of a dead sage or some, some, somebody that you know, lived long ago who not, none of us ever knew. Uh, we just hear about Gautama the Buddha and hope that it's all true and that's what we're taking refuge in, in the memory or the history or biography of somebody who lived 2,534 years ago I mean, that'd be pretty weak refuge. That wouldn't be a refuge, would it? Wouldn't give you much security. <laughs> so, uh, so it's not in in the sentiments and and uh, biographies of teachers that we take refuge, but in the actual here and now experience of consciousness and intelligent awareness and in ability at any given moment to realize the truth, and in our own particular uh, 
determination at this time to live within the eight precepts. Now the eight precepts are uh, for our moral precepts and renouncing, re- restraining or renouncing precepts. Now don't don't think now morality uh, can be can be uh, considered oftentimes in the Western mind, isn't that we? Uh, I remember when we first came to to England fifteen years ago in in Hampstead. Uh, 1977, I, some kind of uh, hippies that lived in uh, living in squats uh, around Hampstead in Belsize Park came to our vihara one evening, and I decided because I was a bit naive and idealistic at the time, decided to give a, a talk on morality. They all got up and left. <laughs> 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 because hippies in 1977 were, you know, just the word itself was uh, offensive and meant kind of oppression, you know, me telling you what you should do, me kind of, uh, you know, commanding you or, you know, telling you maybe what I'm saying might be very good advice, but because I'm kind of shoving it down your throat, you, you feel the oppression of it rather than the wisdom, don't you? So when, when morality is is kind of forced on us, even though it's a good thing, it's the means, isn't it? The means of being of something being put onto us, of being intimidated or threatened or blackmailed into uh, into into being moral. So morality, if it is a, is an intimidation, then we. I understand why we resist it or resent it, but recognize that in in what we're going to do here isn't a kind of uh, commandments that you have to keep, but they are precepts that you refer to that we we determine to live by as a way of, of say limiting our own actions so that what we do, what we say, is not in any way going to uh, cause harm or or any intentional. Problems and disruptions to ourselves or the people around us. So it's it's um it, but they're they're precepts, they're they're reference points, they're criteria for our life here, for action, speech, not not kind of commandments that if you don't keep these rules, you'll go to hell or you'll be punished for not keeping them. That it's not that. Then uh, the say renunciation is another fraught word, isn't it? Renouncing the world and and all it can be come from you know can be a word highly kind of emotive or evocative of you know some great uh, endeavor to to just get rid of things. Or renunciation in this sense is is simplification. So the the first pre- first precept say is is a moral one refrain from from killing uh, other human beings and usually that's not a difficult you know people usually don't have problems with that on these meditation retreats <laughs> uh, 
that's a, not, never been a great problem in my experience. And then they, but then also we try to respect the life of other creatures, of animals, insects, and so forth, so that we're here, say, to to try to to not just uh, you know get rid of uh, or destroy uh, living creatures. So we, this is our, our intention. Say, I will refrain from taking the life of any living creature intentionally. There's a way of it's a precept, it's a it's a point of reference. It's a it's a guideline for behavior, not a commandment, not something you have to do. But it is it's something to remind you and try to help you to to be more respectful and more considerate of other creatures. Then the second is uh, refraining from taking that which is not given. So here in the in the retreat center where you're sharing rooms and dormitories and the various things that belong to the retreat center itself, uh, we're we're going to respect the property and, and that of others. So we determine not to kind of borrow things uh, without letting people know, or or just take for granted even the facilities in the retreat center, but try respect and take care of and look after and and uh, not uh, disturb other people's things or possessions. Or, and then, of course, it implies the deliberate theft or burglary, which is generally not a problem on a meditation retreat either. Then the, the third one is, is in regards to uh, erotic behavior or sexuality. So on a retreat like this, we, we have the abramacharya, which is to refrain from uh, intentional kind of erotic uh, uh, fantasizing or activities to uh, or any kind of overt sexual intentional sexual behavior either uh, you know with yourself or with somebody else uh, so that this is to to this is a, a renunciate precept so so that you're your intention is not to to come here to for some kind of um, to to just use as I say uh, sexuality as a, as something to dwell upon or to to uh, think about. But if if those kind of feelings or or emotions are aroused, then we we have this precept. We we uh, deal with particularly stressful situations just to talk to somebody and. And that, uh, and uh, we don't even know why why we may talk so much or or chat so much. But in a meditation retreat like this, you can you can be become more aware of one's impulse to 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 fill silence with noise or to kind of support each other in this on, for the purpose of meditation. Then the fifth uh, precept to refrain from uh, cocktails and uh, do not go down to the pub and uh, don't take any opium or heroin or cocaine, crack or any of those things. 
because it's difficult to really be mindful when you're under the influence of drugs. Then the sixth is a, is a renunciate precept. So that this is a, 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 in regards to uh, food. We eat, just uh, determine to eat at the designated time on the schedule. And uh, then you can see your own kind of tendency to want to, to eat things munch on things, uh, to kill, I mean, kill time by feeling dist- uh, nervous or bored or restless. And, and many, many of us, when we feel this way, tend to move toward the refrigerator or the cupboard. So this way we, we can see that we, we determine to, to just eat at the designated time. And, and let the, let the food just be there and take what is given, uh, and then we can become aware, more aware of how we tend to want things when we feel threatened or nervous or whatever. How we we want to say, have some kind of sensory something to do, like eating something. Uh, then the then the uh, seventh is the in, in regards to entertainments and distractions. A long one uh, to have play games, to watch the television, to go to the cinema, um, dress up in fancy clothes, um, look in the mirror, make yourself up, wear a lot of jewelry, uh, distract yourself with with vanity or with with uh, entertainments and of. Uh, worldly nature. Now these aren't immoral, are they? But for this retreat we, we renounce those, those kind of activities, uh, refraining from the impulses to do those, to dance, to sing, to, to listen to the radio, watch the television and so forth. Then the last one is in regards to sleep, not to sleep on a high and luxurious bed or this means not to uh, spend this ten days crashed out on the bed. Because that sometimes when, there's, when you can't dance or sing or eat or have a, one can at least sleep. But we're going to even interfere with sleep. Not interfere as a kind of malicious to, uh, intention to 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 make your life difficult, but for reflection. So you notice the the renunciate precept regards to sleep, regards to entertainments and food, and then drugs, and and then in regards to speech and sexual activities, and then um, in regards to property and regards to life. So these are this is the form is is restraint and refraining from these things as a a foundation for reflection and these will reflect our our desires because our desires aren't always going aren't going to fit in with these with these kind of precepts and the desires don't want to be restrained do they uh, desires don't want to to not eat when you want to eat 
desire is when you, when you feel that de- when when you feel hungry or or you have that impulse, then desire is I want to I want to eat, I want to sleep, I want to go to a show or something, and, and in this way you 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 can reflect upon the, these outgoing energies, these tendencies to distract, to to indulge, to to just react to life uh, in habitual ways. So that which can be aware and uh, and know this, this is using your reflective mind, the mind that can observe these desires, these impulses. Get to know them as that, rather than just be caught up in in reactions to everything and have no reference point, no no perspective on it, but just a creature of habit, a cre- or just a, a, a person caught in reacting to life with not, with, without being able to understand or to reflect upon it. So you're all here to say, realize truth, to awaken to the way things are and to free yourself from ignorance. Tomorrow is Friday, and and as you see on this uh, schedule, uh, wake up bells at six fifteen, and so forth, and then uh, we we begin the day late. I want you to to have a good night's sleep tonight. Because I used to give these retreats, used to start off with a bang right at three o'clock in the morning. Because I'm a monk, and sometimes you forget that the rest of you are not monks. So, you know, you, you think, this is the way to... But then everybody would be so tired and exhausted that, that uh, they couldn't even listen to the instructions half the time and be falling asleep. And I decided that's not a very wise way of dealing with this. <laughs> I don't want to kind of beat you into enlightenment. And <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to create a situation that you, you can, you feel a sense of being at ease and relaxed and, and rested so that you can reflect and <coughs> contemplate what happens to you during this time. But the, then on Saturday, the, the daily routine, the 5 a.m. bells and the morning chanting and so forth, this is uh, just a way of, say, developing a sense of routine, of, of attending, of coming in at the right time and of leaving and so forth. It's just a, a way that, w- that we say, live our life together during this, these next 10 days. So I, I will, you all have the, the book. Could I have a book?
I'll do this in English, actually. Look to the English side. If you'll repeat after me. Everybody have your books open to page 65. Homage to the blessed, the noble, the perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed one, the noble one, the perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed one, the noble one, the perfectly enlightened one. To the Buddha I go for refuge. To the Dhamma I go for refuge. To the Sangha I go for refuge. For the second time, to the Buddha I go for refuge. For the second time, to the Dhamma I go for refuge. For the second time, to the Sangha I go for refuge. For the third time, to the Buddha I go for refuge. For the third time, to the Dhamma I go for refuge. For the third time, to the Sangha I go for refuge. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from any kind of erotic behavior. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating liquors and drugs which lead to carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from eating at wrong times. I undertake the precept to refrain from dancing, singing, music, going to shows, wearing garlands, and beautifying myself with perfumes and cosmetics. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying on a high or luxurious sleeping place. I undertake these eight precepts. I undertake these eight precepts. 
I undertake these eight precepts. I undertake these eight precepts. No, I just say this. Uh, you don't have to repeat this. These eight precepts have morality as a vehicle for happiness, have morality as a vehicle for good fortune, have morality as a vehicle for liberation. Let morality therefore be purified. So now the, say, the noble silence begins, which uh, you can uh, determine that uh, the, to, uh, during this time, not a dumb silence, but noble silence. So this evening we can, we can dismiss and, and, uh, Tomorrow begin the, the retreat uh, and to re- really try to encourage you to relax and not to worry about things, not to, uh, if you anticipate or fear or dread, just be aware to, to not to make anything out of it. To the, the, especially these next three days, uh, you're going to, you know, it takes that long to adjust uh, and to feel even physically uh, at ease here because your body is used to a more active uh, life say than a meditation retreat so you'll feel pain you'll feel restlessness these are the kind of just physical reactions from going from maybe a very active busy life to a more passive reflective meditative life. So be patient with yourself and with the, the, the kind of restlessness or, or discomfort that you might feel. After three days usually it, it, tends, it tends to calm down and the uh, body tends to feel much more kind of uh, at ease in this particular uh, situation. And the, the idea that, say, for a retreat like this, where it is silent and you, 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 it is controlled, it is kind of set up for you, uh, it, uh, it's not exciting, not going to be exciting, stimulating, fascinating, interesting, uh, so that your, your senses are, we're not trying to stimulate or excite your senses or your mind, but to, to provide a fairly peaceful uh, environment, calming, uh, moral, safe, uh, relaxed environment for reflection on Dhamma. And where you, you're not just caught in having to deal with exciting stimulation and interesting things. So that many many of you lead lives, maybe interesting, fascinating lives, uh, with a lot of excitement. So, if you do, you'll probably be very restless for a while. For those of you who live very boring lives like we do, you you will have no problems.
in time to the future, beginning something, rising, the origin. This is a perception of time that we have, it is to notice, to reflect that this is the beginning of this day, Iradamravati, meditation retreat. Just try to observe how you're feeling, what kind of mood you're in. You feel bright or dull or indifferent, inspired or depressed. Whatever mood, just to to notice, to pay attention to to what a mood is, where you you feel at this moment, just to observe it, not criticize, but just know it for what it is. And in uh, morning puja, we assemble, begin the the beginning of the day with something uh, skillful, a way of renewing ourselves, renewing our vows, our interest in the Dhamma, our dedication, reflection. So in monasteries every morning, every evening they have the morning, the pujas, morning chanting, evening chanting. So that the, in a continuous way, we're recollecting, remembering what we're doing, why we're here, the purpose of this life. Chanting can be, in, in, in religious ceremonies, can be merely kind of perfunctory things that people do or people have, I mean, sometimes we, we people feel very kind of suspicious of religion, of rituals or ceremonies, thinking it's all hocus pocus or superstition because the age is one where ceremony and ritual have, have been almost discarded or regarded as irrelevant or unimportant to anything real in life. But then uh, we find that rituals and ceremonies can be merely superstitions and perfunctory rituals that we go through out of duty or blind faith and tradition, or they can be useful tools for recollection, for inspiration. So it's up to us, really. Uh, the ceremony is what it is. It, it can be inspiring or, or boring. It can be of use or it can be useless depending on how you want to use it. So I put the, put the onus onto you of what you do with these morning pujas. You just want to use them ignore them, make the best of the thing, it's all kind of hocus-pocus. 
or if you want to use them for reflection, recollection, adoration, to, 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 to give thanks, to adore, to, to remind ourselves of the, that which is holy and pure and good and beautiful and true, and to remind ourselves in that devotional way is one of our beautiful human abilities. Much more beautiful than being a clever cynic. Being cynical and being able to put down things is, is one kind of thing people admire. Having a acerbic tongue and in a fast mind that can, you know, put down something quickly is sometimes greatly admired. But that is, that kind of ability is, is negative and always takes us to increased kind of depression. Where devotional attitude, gratitude, thanks, adoration, recollection of the good and the beautiful and the true, then this, this uplifts the human heart. Our hearts are gladdened. And so this is a skillful means to gladden the heart, to uplift it, to inspire it, to, to bring it up from, say, just a, a level of negative uh, negativity that it oftentimes seems to float in this kind of sea of, of uh, negative feelings or worries. So we can, just through, through developing uh, such things as devotional practices, we can inspire and uplift our hearts so that they're, they're, they're gladdened, they're bright, happy rather than negative and critical and depressed. Just like the, when we chant Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa, Pali language means nothing to most of you if you don't understand. It just sounds like the, you know, chanting, uh, mumbling in, uh, in nonsense syllables. But as we, they develop such a, uh, a salutation. Namo is to like praise or to give praise towards something. Namo tasa bhagavato. Bhagavato is a blessed sense of blessedness, holiness. Now that is those are beautiful words, but contemplate what is blessed in your life, what is, what is holy, rather than thinking of yourself only in the most kind of, uh, kind of mundane or banal adjectives, try to, try to put this, 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 try to find what is truly blessed or holy or pure in your life, in yourself.
because we do have words, we have uh, concepts of this nature, then they're pointing to something real. It's not just, we don't have words that, ha that uh, are totally meaningless and don't have any reality behind them, or no possibility for realization. Unless you just have nonsense syllables like, like kind of grunts or meaningless noises we make, but say such words deliberately formed and used and inspire the mind when we, when we understand them. They uplift just the thought of blessedness. A sense of goodness, that which blesses and, and protects and, and uplifts and, and helps and all these kind of good things that we can, that we long for or long to relate to or experience or realize. Bhagavato is the same Bhagavan uh, uh, Ranjanish adopted this title which kind of uh, profaned the actual meaning, the most of us anyway. You know the Rajanishi, one tends to feel it's been profaned by his usage. One doesn't regard, at least from my knowledge, regard him as blessed. But the, but still, I mean, the, the most beautiful exalted terms can be used for the most horrendous uh, actions, less like the swastika, isn't it? It's actually a very holy symbol, ancient and holy cosmic symbol, but because the Hitler used it the sign of a kind of Nazi fascist symbol, we, whenever we see the swastika, we kind of shudder and think of brutality and corruption. So religious symbols, they can be used for very bad things. That doesn't mean that, that they're bad in themselves, just they're being used as something bad. So we, instead of just going along with reactions and prejudices against them, try to get to the real source of their meaning inside yourself. Try to try to contemplate what is blessed within you or what you mean by that word. If there is blessedness in this universe that we live in, what is it? What is it that you find blessed in your own life.
Bhagavato Arahato Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Arahant is our word for perfection as a human being. A human being who's realized truth is no longer deluded by anything is an Arahant. One time I asked a psychologist about, do you have, do you have any term for, you know, a, a perfectly sane, uh, well-adjusted, uh, enlightened human being? And this particular psychologist uh, said, well, we just have what is considered normal, or which is a, a certain level of, of uh, realization and attitude which, which uh, is considered acceptable in society. But do you have a standard for human perfection? Thought never occurred to him. Well, in Buddhism, the Arahant is the standard, is the, is the, the perfect, perfected human being. Not as a, not, not to think of perfection in, as, as in, in terms of idealism, but in realization. So an Arahant is, is the word we use for one who has realized the truth, no longer deluded by the appearances or the karma or the force of habit or the conditioning of their minds. Arahant is one who's realized the Four Noble Truths directly, not just read them out of a book, but actually contemplated, had insight and realization through reflection on those four truths. Then Samma, Sam Buddhasa, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahanto Samma, Sam Buddhasa, Sam Buddha, Sam Buddhasa. Enlightened through understanding themselves is like the self-reliance or perfect enlightenment through understanding directly direct insight and enlightenment isn't isn't given to us or isn't, we don't regard it as being something that is is given to us by some external force it's not a, an act of grace from from outside, but it is a it is what self enlightenment, which which is a bit misleading, because that sounds a bit uh, egotistical. I can get enlightened by myself. I don't need God or anything else. Because it sounds like a little child, doesn't it? I can do it myself. And that's not self enlightenment, but Sama, perfect enlightenment, sambuddhasa, Buddha, or knowledge, through understanding the way things are. 
in one's own life, in, within one's own character and the way one individual, as individuals, as types, as characters, as personalities. It's through understanding all through this that, that there is this perfect enlightenment. It's not abstracted, is it, into ideas of what you should become in order to become enlightened. Not like you have to become a uh, some kind of saintly, uh, pure-hearted person that, and uh, virtuous and loving and compassionate before you can get enlightened. It means that you you use even the dross or the corruption or the bad things of your life or the selfishness or the stupidity for enlightenment. You're seeing it, you're using it, as seeing the Dhamma of it, of even anger as what arises ceases. Where if you think of yourself as someone who has to become become somebody that never gets angry before you can get enlightened. You always feel a sense of despair because you, you're always trying to become some kind of ideal thing that you imagine, a person, a kind of maybe one of these statues like the Buddha Rupa here and the beautiful Buddha Rupa, I've known that Buddha Rupa for oh, nearly 15 years now. And never once has that Buddha Rupa ever expressed any anger whatsoever. It sits there like that all 15 years now, in perfect bliss and happiness. But I haven't, 15 years of living here. Why is that? <laughs> and so, remember, Buddha images are ideals. They're symbols. They're, they're, they're not Buddhas as such. They're symbols. So they're static, they're fixed. They're ideas. Insensitive. The Buddha Rupa here doesn't feel anything no matter how cold it gets in the winter time, you never have to put any kind of warm blankets over, over it like we have to do. Never get, you know, it doesn't feel the cold or the heat, or it doesn't, doesn't have to eat food or defecate, doesn't have to sleep. But it's an ideal, isn't it? When we see it, it, it brings forth some some uh, ideal of, of human perfection. But that hu- perfection is found within the, with the with, uh, you know, not through getting rid of, imper- not through uh, annihilating imperfection, but understanding them and seeing them in the right way. So if you're here, thinking that this meditation retreat, you're going to be able to become somebody who doesn't get angry or greedy or jealous or frightened and, and then you have, might have a chance in the future sometime to get enlightened. Well, that 
whole way of thinking, if you, if you start from that particular attitude, I guarantee you'll end up feeling despair. Even if you should become a monk or a nun, dedicate your whole life totally to practicing the Dhamma, but from that attitude of becoming somebody, something else, you will feel a sense of great disappointment and despair as a result. Because that, that is uh, impossible. You can't become a Buddha Rupa or a perfect person or an ideal. So you, you must learn to understand the karma you have, the way you are, the conditions, the, the things, the, the way things are in, on the emotional plane, on the physical plane, on the sensory plane, and all of this. Not thinking that getting rid or denying or rejecting, repressing it is going to, is somehow going to uh, let you out of it or liberate you from it. Liberation is through understanding, not through running away from anything. So when we chant this Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one this uh, this is a way, this is a re- recollection for our own life. It's, uh, it's also a, a, a praise to the Lord Buddha as a historical sage and teacher. It works as a, as a, as a kind of mantra. Because it brings into consciousness this sense of blessedness, nobility, perfection, perfect enlightenment that is our human right and our human uh, inheritance if we are willing to seek it or to put forth the effort to understand. Now this type of reflection I've been doing is to is a way of of using uh, things like chants because you can take them with you when you memorize Namatasa Bhagavata Arahato Sama Sambhutasa and when you're sitting in a traffic jam on the M25 or you flying in an airplane going to Thailand or America one has these these kind of reflections of things that gladden uplift the heart so this is this is one thing you need to develop 
for meditation is how to gladden your heart, how to inspire it, how to by reflecting on very positive symbols and and concepts and applying that to your own experience, not just not just sentimentality, but a kind of goody goodness, but it's it's a real appreciation of what is good or true and beautiful. And internalizing that so that you, you know how to brighten your mind when it's dull or depressed. We can do this as we begin to see the power we have to train ourselves and to develop and cultivate in wholesome ways. Because when we think about ourselves, as personalities we get depressed. That it's depressing to be a person. And I think of myself as a person, I get depressed still. Being a person is a depressing thing. Even after 25 years of Buddhist monasticism, when I, if I start thinking about myself as a person, I get depressed. Why is that? Because it, being a personality is depressing. Is depressing in itself. So when you think about yourself all the time, we have one of the one somebody that comes here to the monastery. <coughs> I watch him, and he he's always going around thinking about himself. He's this intense kind of miserable look continuously. And wherever he goes, he has this kind of rain cloud over his head, you know, obsessed with himself. Thinking about himself. Whenever he comes and talks, he's talking about himself. Himself is the self, is him as a personality, his astrological sign, his character, his this, his that, and the whole, the whole obsession of of himself. And his whole presence is one of gloom and depression. So, as persons, personalities, when we, when we think of ourselves in those terms, then we get into this, this very negative state. So, to lift ourselves out of that, we, we, think we can train ourselves to brighten and gladden the mind at will. Not as an act of suppression, or not to just kind of use the power of positive thinking as a, to, to get rid of negativity, but to balance the forces in your mind. Instead of just hovering in, this, in, a, in, a, in a negative state, to, to really bring into consciousness the you know, awareness of what is truly good and blessed and noble and perfect. Not as an intimidation of your personality, but as a way of gladdening your mind to realize your true nature rather than be stuck with an endless kind of reiteration and obsession with faults, with failures, with uh, what's wrong with 
you or the world or the people around you. Another way to use this is like if you're really a cynical and negative person uh, who, who finds gladdening your heart kind of smarmy and that, that think, think of it in terms of being sentimental or foolish, sometimes we, we find ourselves resisting this. Fair enough. I remember one time developing this, 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 those three little words that mean so much to everyone. I love you. And I kept, I'm, I find these words, you know, so sent in pop songs and all that. And God, and really marmy and sentimental. So I decided to just say this to myself. So I think, think to myself, I love you to myself. And then there's, then the negative reaction would arrive, oh, yeah, this is a sickening thing to say to yourself. And I'd listen to that negativity and accept it. And, and so I, I used it as a kind of, uh, a way of, of, of bringing up negative feelings or resistance to, uh, to things like that, to the, that particular thought. The thing of, you shouldn't love yourself, it's, you should, you, you know, self-love and all this sort of kind of thinking of it in, in terms of uh, in, infatuation with your ego or something that wasn't that, wasn't, didn't mean that, but just bringing it, using the, uh, a positive thought, not as a suppression in a kind of brainwashing conditioning of your mind, but also using it as to see what it brings up in, uh, as a, on an emotional level, whether you find it smarmy or sentimental or you feel uncomfortable with it, you feel, it makes you feel embarrassed or you feel... Uh, that it's not true, or whatever you, you might feel, then you can, as you recognize the negativity that arises, you can let it go. Till eventually, I can, I can sit here and, and say that to myself now and feel perfectly at ease and mean it. A sense of self-respect and being at ease with, with this being here, not being critical, not being uh, you know, uh, negative and, and uh, judgmental and uh, averse or dismissive towards this, this being, this person here, this individual. Self-respect is to, to have a good attitude towards yourself. Self-respect is necessary essential ingredient for the holy life, for developing this path.
So now we can finish off the morning puja, breakfast, chores, when you do the chores, chores or work sometimes bring up also interesting mental states. So, you know, to, to develop an attitude towards these the, the working period as a way of offering and serving and uh, make it into make your, what you're doing is a, a kind of beautiful gift for the welfare of the community rather than oh, I'm going to do this chore <laughs> uh, sometimes we got to do the dishes uh, yeah and so we we do the dishes as a chore, something I've got to do the dishes, and uh, that that imply always a negative uh, feeling of having to do something you'd rather not do. It you'd rather sit here and meditate or or do something that you think is really conducive towards the holy life. And washing the dishes is not something that's holy at all. It's just one of those household chores that you have to put up with in life is a totally negative approach, isn't it? So one can do the dishes in, in that kind of way, or one can make doing the dishes, washing the dishes as, as an act of love and service, as a mindful pra- practice of mindfulness. Cleaning the, the dishes or whatever Ever chores or duties assigned to you, uh, one thing, be aware of any negative states that might arise in regards to it. Just acknowledge that. But then try to put forth the kind of effort that comes from like, from making an offering or doing something uh, for somebody else, uh, a good action, a generous offering, uh, an opportunity to, to serve the community. So then the, the little chores or the duties we have here are, are opportunities for joyful, uh, ex- for joy. And, and that definitely is a, a essential ingredient for enlightenment, is, the, is a mind that is joyful. So in this, everything that happens during this retreat, whether you're walking from one place to another, eating your food, uh, doing the chores, uh, sitting in the meditation hall, walking out in the field, uh, whatever moods or emotions arise in this during this this retreat, it's it's to see the dhamma of it. Not to not and to, to to have the attitude of seeing dhamma rather than of being caught up in uh, in uh, in proliferating around it or trying to get rid of things or or feeling you know being caught up into moods or the kind of things the emotions that you might be having, but being more confident in just recognizing the impermanence and that the that 
feelings or love and hate and happiness and suffering and praise and blame and and elation and depression are the way they are. And to to use what opportunities we have here to gladden the mind, to make offerings, and to reflect on, say, the offerings that are given to us, such as the food that's prepared and and made available to us. It, This will definitely uh, say that that everything that happens is dhamma rather than sitting practice. In the vipassana world, the vipassana has become a a kind of cult almost in America. So you you people are always talking about sitting. So they say, I, I want to go sit. And I've sat, I've sat in Burma, or I've been sitting in Sri Lanka. It's, it's become a, an obsession with sitting. And I sat for ten, ten hours, or I sat on retreats. And so sitting, that one posture becomes an obsession, kind of addiction to, to the mind. But Dhamma is, is, is nothing to do with sitting. Ajahn Chah once said, if that was the case, then hens would be enlightened beings. <laughs> they can sit for ages on eggs. So just the, the act of sitting is, can be, you know, it's not, don't, don't, don't exalt sitting into a kind of religious cult, but it is a it is a skillful means. 